Thanks for listening to the Swearing In Podcast, where you'll hear the origin stories of those who chose to serve. So ground your gear, take a seat, and listen up. The Swearing In Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the Swearing In Podcast. I am your host, Marty Smith. Today, my guest is retired Boise Police Department Corporal John Mathis. John retired from the Air Force in 1998. He moved from Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska, to Boise, Idaho, where he took a position on the State Parole Board. He left that job in 1999 when he was hired on to the Boise Police Department. John attended the State Police Academy and then the Boise Advanced Academy before becoming a patrolman for the city. He remained a patrolman for the next 19 years and talks about his experiences and what life was like being on the police force. John retired from the Boise Police Department in 2018. Now this concludes your pre-brief. So let's get on with the interview. Uh, today, my guest is retired Boise Police Department Corporal John Mathis. John, thanks for coming back on the program uh, and putting up with me again for another hour. <laughs> no problem. I appreciate you having me. <laughs> you have the honor of being the first law enforcement on the Swearing In podcast. So I, that only leaves me uh, a Coast Guardman. Coast Guardsman. Well, there you go. Off yeah. of my eight symbols, I only need a Coast Guardsman, and then uh, then I'll be finally complete. So, uh, John, let's go back to your uh, – and if anybody's interested, uh, it was a few episodes ago. Uh, you told me your military story, and mm-hmm. you retired yes. as a Master Sergeant, and you retired out of Offutt, uh, Nebraska, in 1998. Yes, that's correct. Yep. So what were, what were your plans – you know, the year prior or six months prior or one month prior, whatever it was, uh, you obviously making a plan for uh, after you retired. What? How did that come about? Well, I, I mean, when I was in the military and once I decided to make it a career, I always knew I wanted to get out at 20 years or so and, you know, start a second career somewhere. And uh, so in 1997, which was my 20 year point, uh-huh. I uh, made a decision I'd be retiring summer of 98 which would have put me at just under 21 years in. But so in the fall of 97, late summer, fall of 97, I start looking for jobs for uh, after retirement. Right. And the wife I was married to at the time had a, (laughs) was originally from Boise, Idaho. Okay. And she got an assignment. She was air force also, and she got an assignment to mountain home. Oh, look at that. So our, our thing was we were going to go to Boise and live there and she was going to finish her time out at mountain home. So, uh, I applied for a couple jobs in Boise, one being at the Boise police department and the other being with the uh, Idaho parole board as a institutional hearing officer, it was called. Um, so fall time in 97, I had a interview set up with both of them to fly up there. I flew up there for about five days and Boise PD had me within three days. I did my written test, my physical, uh, fitness test, 
an oral board with senior people from the department Jeez. and my polygraph. Wow. So I got so I got all that done. And then I interviewed also while I was there with the Idaho Parole Board with the executive director of that. Yeah. And um she basically the job for that was a like I said it was institutional hearing officer. It was for uh interviewing inmates out at the three prisons outside of Boise when people were coming up for parole. Oh geez. You would do one-on-one interviews with inmates to make recommendation of the parole board itself if they should get out or not. Yeah. Yeah. Parole. So I did all that interviewing and did all the testing and uh, passed everything. And uh, Boise, I got on the list. I, I think I was like number seven or number eight or something. Oh, you were. And they called me in January, February at the same time that the Idaho parole, parole board called me also. So oh, Idaho parole board offered me a job <clears throat> and I told them, well, I have to think about it. And then the police department called me to say that I was like number eight or whatever after all the final testing out of whatever amount they tested. I think there was like 150 total tested. Okay. And they were only hiring six people that go around. Of course. Right. So, <laughs> so they're like, what, we want you to come in and test again this spring because we're going to be doing another testing for another hiring. And I'm like, well, I got this offer from the parole board and I think I'm going to take that so I can get a job. Yeah. Yeah. So I called the parole board back and took that job. So I, I initially moved up to Idaho in uh, April of 98 and started with the parole board. I retired one May of 98, but with terminal leave, yeah. I moved up there early and started the job with like, I still had 30 days to go in the military when I started with the parole board. Sure. So I worked with them starting in April of 98 and about January 99, I realized that this was, the, it was a desk job, basically. I'd go out to the prison for two weeks straight interviewing 25 different inmates. I had a caseload of, and, and then I would be in my office for another four weeks typing reports to give to the parole board itself, oh, wow. making recommendations after doing some background checks and doing some checks on the inmates and calling people and doing different things and, you know, make recommendations on if they should get, get out on parole or if they should stay in longer. Yeah. So. I did that job for a while and then I decided, you know what, I don't, I can't see myself doing this for another 20 years. Yeah. So be Boise PD was testing and this was spring of 99. So I tested, went through the whole process again, ended up number two on the list. Hey. And so they hired December of 99. I got hired by Boise PD with uh, nine of us going to the Academy and uh, we started late December of 99 going to the, uh, Idaho Academy. Idaho has a state Academy that you went to. So we started going to that in December now, and be, finished now, up in that March. Did you have uh, plans to just take that 20 years of security forces experience and use it in the civilian? Was that kind of your plan all along? Yeah. Yeah. That was my, 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 I, I mean, criminal, I had a bachelor's degree then in criminal justice. Oh, okay. okay. And I had done that while I was in the air force. So I got my bachelor's degree done and you know, that was my, I was, you know, being a cop in the air force, that was basically all I knew. And that's <laughs> what I wanted to do on the outside was something in criminal justice. Sure. That's why the parole board job was, you know, something in criminal justice, yeah. which it was interesting. I mean, 
I got to talk to people that did some very bad crimes and, yeah. you know, murderers, rapists, sex offenders, everything. And so it was interesting. That but, actually, uh, that actually you know, sounds, wanted to be a cop. yeah, that actually sounds like good prep for being on the police. Well, yeah. You know, and actually, you know, I, I can, you know, we'll get into it, but once I was on the department, I actually ran into a couple of people that I gave, you know, interviews, oh, that yeah. I did interviews with from the board. So did you end up arresting a few of them again? Oh, so <laughs> oh, no. yeah. Repeat, yeah. repeat offender. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That you're yes. with your interview. So, did you initially say they were good to go to get paroled? Uh, it just depended. I mean, I mean, sometimes I would have, like I said, usually we had a caseload of 20 to 25. We'd get for an eight week cycle and we'd go out and interview everybody for a couple of weeks. And we'd be in the office doing all our follow up by going over records, calling people that this guy had been involved with at the prison or on the outside, calling the counties they'd been convicted in and talking to people that knew them or arrested them or dealt with them or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then also looking at what their plans were when they got out, we had to check on where they were going to live, where they're going to get work, oh, wow. who was yeah. going to let them live where everything, you know, to see if they had a viable plan for yeah. parole. Oh, I didn't know that was so, part of it. Yeah. So. so it was interesting. It was interesting to delve into backgrounds of people and all that. And even after only, you know, I was there a year and a half total, but after about six or eight months of it, you could almost cut and paste some people's oh, yeah. criminal yeah. life, social life, and all that in, and uh, it'd be almost the same thing for each person. So the, uh, <laughs> it was the, getting kind of monotonous. Yeah, I, I can imagine uh, the monotony. Would, and, and that yeah. was only your first year. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's get yeah. into the academy. Now, uh, sure. you've had I, – I don't know how much of your training crosses over. Maybe all of it. I don't know. But – uh, you know, what was your impressions of the Academy? Well, I mean, the academies at, in Idaho. So like I said, it's a statewide Academy where like Boise was sending nine of us to the Academy. Our class was about 60 people. And that was from departments all over the state. Okay. We're sending people. So our class, which is a 12 week class was, uh, from different departments around the state. So, yeah, we uh, it, it, it wasn't a as some states have more of a military type um, academy where, you know, if an instructor walks by, you you go to attention on the wall. Yeah. Oh, they stand do. there. Yeah. Attention, you know, or, if, you know, a, a stress academy, they call it. Oh, wow. Or, you know, you, you screw something up. You know, we did have, you know, if you screwed something up, you could be doing push ups. Yeah. So you could do that. So but ours was still. You know, you're in uniform every day. You got inspected every day. You had PT pretty much every day. Um, I mean, there's, you know, yeah, different. There's still yeah. a weeding out process for the account. Oh yes, I mean, we lost. I think out of our sixty, we lost about five people. I think oh, total, yeah. huh. a lot, but we lost five. So, and that was basically from not passing tests. Yeah, not passing. You know, because you'd have different blocks you went through of. You know, like the first couple of weeks was constitutional law and Idaho law. And then you had a test on that. And if you failed it, you got a second chance. If you failed it again, you were out. Yeah. Okay. So, and it, so it went on like that, you know, for the next 12 weeks, you know, doing all the different training and stuff. You had a second chance. And if you failed a second time, yeah. you were gone. So now, I understand the, uh, the academy is a lot 
going to the academy is going to be a lot different than going to basic. And the, probably the biggest base, mm -hmm. the biggest difference uh, has got to be an age range in the academy. Right? Oh, yeah. Yes. So you're yeah, in your so late the, 30s. Um, yeah, I was actually I was 40 years old when oh. I went to the academy. So I was I was probably in the and there was a couple guys a few years older than me, but majority, of course, were in their mid 20s to mid 30s. OK, was the majority. So yeah. I was yeah, I was one of, say, three or four of the oldest huh. in the class. So, yeah. So that was a little and that was one of the big questions when I got hired by the uh, oral board I had to go to. You know, they you see an oral board where you have I believe we had two captains, two lieutenants and a deputy chief on the oral board. Uh -huh. And they're basically throwing questions at you, scenarios and so forth, and also asking opinions. And a lot of it was to see if you'd stick to your guns. And oh, yeah. you know, even if you gave a wrong answer, because a lot of people, you know, that are interviewing to be a cop have never been a cop. Yeah. And they may give an answer and they'll slam right back at them and say, oh, you're going to do that. Well, how, what if that's wrong? And they want to see if you'll stick to your guns, you know, oh. as far as answer. Interesting. So, yeah. So they, it, it was one thing that I knew about. So it was easy for me to, in that oral board to say, you know, well, this is what I do and all that. And when they threw it back at me, when an example was you're with your training officer and you're at a, um, alarm at a convenience store, it's closed and the alarm's going off. You get there, you find an unlocked door, you go in, you make sure everything's okay, which it is. And you're waiting for the owner to come out to secure it. And you see your training officer take a candy bar and eat it. Oh, <laughs> what are you going to do? Right, right. And I said, well, I'd probably say something to him about, you know, it's not pretty cool. You know, maybe you want to pay the guy when he gets here. Yeah. And one of the lieutenants says, well, what if he tells you to F off? I said, well, then I'd probably go to whoever his supervisor is or my supervisor in the training program and let him know that. Yeah. And then another one throws back, oh, you're going to be a little narc, are you? Ah, right. They, they're trying to trip and you I'm up like, on everything. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I guess so. If that's what he's going to do and that's going to violate policy, it's going to violate the law. If that's being a narc, then I'm going to be a narc. Oh, nice. So, nice. so they just, they want to see what you're going to do. I mean, if, you, if I would have said, well, I wouldn't do anything. And they'd, then they'd throw something back at you. Sure. You know, again. so, yeah. So they're just seeing how you are under stress a little bit of, you know, how you're going to answer stuff. I would imagine so, that comes a little bit easier with you. Uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't as bad for me because I'd been through enough. Yeah. You probably you know, saw real life situations. And, and yeah. Yeah. And being, and being through different schools and stuff and classes and, uh -huh. you know, knowing things about how, you know, how people act and, you know, in a, and how departments were. I mean, even in the air force, we dealt with police departments. So yeah. we knew how oh, some okay. of them yeah. treated people and all that and what they looked for in people and so forth. So, huh. yeah. So anyway, but yeah, so the Academy though, you know, it was, it, it, it was, it was a good learning experience as far as going from the military to civilian life. And I got to actually, I learned a lot in the Academy, a lot more than I did ever in the air force at, at, at the Academy they had there, which was a very small six week thing. Why so? Because we had more in depth. I mean, we had oh, okay. EVOC driving, you know, emergency vehicle operations driving. So we did it for a full week. All we did was drive around hauling ass everywhere, like <laughs> we're chasing people and learning how to do different things with vehicles. And wow, so that's forth. pretty cool. Yeah, which is fun. You know, another week was a full week at the range, of course, qualifying and making sure you can shoot your gun correctly and all that. Yeah. 
and on then we had a lot of uh a lot of interaction type scenario based stuff where like domestic violence and you know and then of course oh, a lot yeah. of hands-on training as far as defensive tactics which was a lot more than the air force ever offered in the academy though i mean we you learned a lot of the state you know everything everybody was taught the same thing yeah and after we got done with our 12 weeks of the Idaho police Academy and graduated. Then we went back to Boise police department. Us nine did. And we had 12 more weeks of our own Academy. Oh, you did. Yeah. So we had 24 weeks, basically a police Academy. So about six months total. So we had our, and we, ours was called the advanced Academy. So our, our local departments, our Boise police department Academy was the advanced Academy. Okay. And basically you're learning, you're learning the Boise way of doing things. Oh, okay. All right. So you're still learning. You learn something at the state level, you know, and that, all the stuff. And then you go back and you go over a lot of the same stuff, but there might be a little different ways of Boise doing things. Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, so that was, you know, so basically six months of academy type life, you know, going to classes and doing different uh, hands-on things and yeah. all that before you were able to go into the uh, training officer program, which was 14 more weeks Jeez, where you're with training officers. So you're with three phases of training and your phase one, you have four weeks, phase two, four weeks, phase three, four weeks. And then if you pass all that, you go back for two more weeks to your phase one guy. And he basically rides along like a civilian with civilian clothes on. And he is, not going to be doing much of anything because oh, he's yeah, making yeah. sure you've learned what you're doing and you're ready to go on your own. Oh, he's almost so for, just an observer for the most part. He's an observer. That's all he is. Yeah. So, so anyway, but yeah, so September, I went on the road myself then and started on a swing shift basically is what I worked. Uh, oh, okay. Three 30 in the afternoon to one 30 in the morning because yeah. we work four four ten 10 hour shifts. So yeah. That's what I went to first. Yeah. So I just, I worked on the swing shift there and I enjoyed that. And I stayed on patrol, like I said, my whole career, because I didn't really want to, I had always thought about being a detective or being a crime scene investigator. Yeah. You know, and then once I got on patrol and been on patrol a couple of years, because detectives still worked out of an office, even though they came out on stuff, they still had a desk and all that where patrol car was my desk. Huh. You know, I I had my computer in there that dispatched me where I could do my reports on it if I wanted to in my car. And, you know, that was my desk for the day. And I had my patrol area and that's what, that's what I liked. I mean, every day was different. Did you had something typically patrol uh, on your own or as a, as a team? Um, usually in Boise. So Boise is about 230,000 people. Okay. And we had a part, our department was about 300 officers in patrol. We had about 110 officers. So our shift was about 15 to 18 people normally. Okay. So you had about uh, 10 sectors. So normally it was one man cars. And then you may have an extra we had rove units also. So you had a sector car and then maybe a rove unit and maybe a second sector car in certain sectors that were very busy. Yeah. So, you know, and then, but then on certain days, like we worked 
on the swing shift that I finally left, I, I was on the longest for was, uh, I worked Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I was off Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I was usually by myself. Uh-huh. Friday was what was called our overlap day where the other swing shift worked with us. Oh, I since see. Since we were yeah, yeah. days. Yeah. So they were there also. So we had two swing shifts out. So you had 30 something people out and those would be busy nights. So Friday oh. night can be busy. Saturday night is when the two night teams overlap and those can be busy. So usually we did two man cars on those days. Okay. Is we called it tacking up where two guys would tack up. So we would do that on usually on Fridays when I worked. And then on Saturdays and night guys would do two man cars a lot of times. So, but usually it was usually I'd say, you know, 80% of the time you're a one man car. Yeah. So, yeah. So why, uh, I'm, I'm going to come back to it and say, and ask you why you didn't want to go be a detective or mm-hmm. anything off a of patrol. Was it really just, the nature of doing patrol and then you kind of, which is after. Yeah. I mean, after a few years of doing patrol, I realized that, and and that's what I basically in the air force, I did some office jobs in the air force. I did back office jobs as they were called, you know? Yeah. And, but on, on regular, on, on a police department, on patrol, I, I realized that I'm, I, I felt that was my calling. I enjoyed going to calls and helping people. And going, you know, I'd go to a call, I'd help them, I'd do what I needed to do, oh, and yeah. I'd go to another call. Yeah. And that's what I enjoyed. And I enjoyed going to in-progress stuff also, the code three calls, as we call them, lights and siren. You got a guy with a pipe swinging it at somebody in a parking lot. Uh-huh. You know, I like going to that stuff. I like being involved in that. And that's what my forte was, I believe, was... Huh. You be on patrol. And there was a lot of guys like that. You had a lot of guys that did their whole career in patrol. Then you had others that moved around a lot. They went to different specialties. So, yeah, you know, you might have a guy that goes to detectives for three or four years, and then he becomes a school resource officer for a couple of years. Oh, okay. Or gets on the traffic unit for a few years or something like that. So you had guys that moved around a lot. Then you had guys that got to specialties and stayed there forever. That's that's so, kind of that's kind of nice, especially compared to the military. That right. you would have an option if you wanted to, to move right. and try something new, or right. just stay and if you want if you want to stay. Yeah, yeah. And it was the same way with promotion. I mean, I tested twice for sergeant and got on the list, but I was down low on the list because oh, we yeah. had like I think the list was like sixteen names, and I was usually like ten, twelve, thirteen somewhere in there, and they, they never got down to me because they oh. promote, you know, five <laughs> sure. or six. Right. Because the list was good for a couple of years and we weren't, we were only a 300 man department. Yeah. So our might only have a few sergeants retire yeah, during yeah. that time. So, yeah. But after, after a couple of times of testing, I was like, you know, I really don't want to be a sergeant because uh, I was getting it. My rank, I was getting my seniority on my team to where when the sergeant was gone, I was the acting sergeant. There was two or three of oh. us that went to what was called acting field commander course and we basically learned how to handle being the sergeant yeah and when he was gone i would bump up to sergeant so there was times where i was you know he might be gone on vacation for two weeks and i'd be the acting sergeant yeah. for a couple of weeks huh. so and and i enjoyed that i enjoyed doing it that way versus being a full-time sergeant and being permanent yeah but, yeah yeah 
they all had their own little cubicle in our station and, you know, they'd be in there doing paperwork a lot. And, you know, they'd come out when they were done with paperwork for a while and they might be back in doing more paperwork. Oh, God. Yeah, right. So, right. Yeah. So that wasn't what I wanted to do permanently. Okay. So you went 20 years. You retired in 2020. Is that about right? 2018. 19 oh, years. 19 years. 2018. 19 years on the department. And I had a year and a half at the parole board, which counted towards the retirement because it's oh, all under the state. Okay. Percy system. So basically uh, I had, yeah, 20, I had like 20 and a half years in, in state Percy. So I met the rule because the rule was 80. You had to have your age and your amount of years equal 80 to get your retirement okay. at a full yeah. rate. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So oh. I, I had that in 2018. So you go the whole time being a patrolman now. Mm -hmm. Can what are some of your highlights of that twenty years, or is that just too broad? Of, <laughs> is that too broad of a question? No, no. I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of big. My what you know, I my wife asked me that a couple of days ago. She goes, "What are you going to tell him?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Well, I could tell him a lot of stuff." I mean, <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, I got to I got to admit. I mean, even though Boise, you know, you think of Boise, Idaho, you know probably not a lot happening there, but you know, it's like any town you have crime yeah, and you have the same crimes that LA has, but just not on that level. Yeah, sure. Sure. You know, so um, I went to, you know, I, I, I mean, I did, I, I went to bank robberies. I went to stabbings. I went to shootings. I went wow. to a lot of suicides. Oh, um, yeah. So, I mean, I went to a lot of different calls and I mean, I had some, some highlights that were, you know, that were good calls that were, Let's say uh, your adrenaline was really going. Yeah, you yeah. know where you know there was some shots fired or something, and as you were going in and things like that, and you know, so like I mean, like I'll give you an example of one. I, I got involved in I think four bank robberies where we caught them every time. Oh but yeah, one of them. Huh. But one of them was a guy. He robbed this bank that was in like a um, supermarket area that had a bank there. And it was kind of on the outer parts of town. Well, the teller gave him the money. He leaves. They call that it's a white four-door car. Uh, and he's a, he's a white male, you know? Okay. Well, they also put in, at the time, we had a system called ETS, electronic, trans, electronic tracking system, which is basically like the little trackers they put in the money packs. Oh, really? Wow. So- that got activated once it left the teller's um, box uh -huh. or drawer that activated it in that stack of money. Oh, and wow. it starts hitting off the towers, the Wi-Fi towers around the city Yeah, where it's at. And we in our cars, certain cars, I think we had, you know, probably 10 cars total that had the ETS system in it. Uh-huh. And we were all trained on how to use it. And it basically was just a light and an audible system that would let you know if you were close to that pack. Oh, wow. It would give you more lights and a louder audible if you were close to it. And I had one that day when this bank robbery went down. And the dispatch put us on, on a side channel, it was called. As we were responding, this guy was leaving and he was hitting off certain towers. So we were trying to, you know, figure out on the radio, well, he was getting going that way. He's heading to the interstate, you know? Sure. So a few of us head to the interstate 
And sure enough, he hits off one of the towers on the interstate. So I get on the interstate at one of the on-ramps and he's still going along where he's hitting towers going along the interstate. Yeah. So I'm hauling ass up the interstate and I come up to where I got three white cars ahead of me. Oh, geez. and I'm getting, I'm getting hot signals that they're right in front of me somewhere. Cause it also has a directional thing, a little arrow oh, it does. to say right, left behind you, or in front of you. And then it's had five lights and then the audible. And I was getting like four bars. It was called and showing in front of me. So I'm like, he's right in front of me somewhere. Hey, you're getting excited. So I be excited right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm letting the other guys know that's coming behind me. You know, I got a couple other units trying to catch up too. that, you know, the guy's right in front of me somewhere. So we're going along and it's not rush hour yet, but we're on the interstate and I pass one of the white cars and my thing still shows forward. Okay. I come up to the second one still showing forward. And as I'm going around the second one, I look over at the guy and he's just looking straight ahead, both hands on the wheel, not even looking over at me. And I'm sitting there right next to him, looking at him. <laughs> and for some reason, I still remember the hairs on my neck just kind of stood up and I start going ahead of him. And right when I got ahead of him, my signal went bam behind me. Oh, geez. Wow. So it was him. So I hit my brakes. He went ahead of me. I got behind him, called everybody, gave the you know plate number. We're heading this way, white male. And as I'm given that, he brings a gun up in the rearview mirror and Whoa. starts waving it at me. Oh, geez. So I'm like, all right, well, he's showing a, you know, he's showing a fun firearm now. And uh, finally, another unit catches up. So we're behind him. He's, we're next to each other behind this guy. And finally, we get enough break in traffic. And the guy's looking at me still and waving the gun around. So I oh. tell the other guy, uh, his name was Chad Hurdy. I said, Hurdy, you know, go ahead and pit him. So the pit's the pursuit intervention technique where you basically tap the rear end uh -huh. with your car and spin it out. Okay. You spin the other car out. So Chad pitted him. The guy spun. I rammed him in the front end with mine, my, my front end into his passenger side front end. Okay. And. I'm getting out of my car and taking my gun out, coming in behind my engine block because I can see him raising the gun. So I'm bringing my gun out and another unit had got there. And right when I get out and look up with my gun on him, he puts the gun to his head and shoots himself. Oh, my God. Jeez. So we're like, you know, nose to nose with cars and he just blasts himself. Oh. So we go up on him. He's still twitching. Guns in his hand. So we're holding the, you know, I got my gun on him while somebody else grabs his gun away from his hand. Yeah. The money's laying there in a money floorboard and all that stuff. So oh, it was a good catch. I mean, it was good. You know, he got attributed. I think the FBI said he was involved in like 15 robberies around the bank robberies around the Pacific Northwest. Oh, wow. So he had been, he'd been doing quite a few. Wow. So, yeah. He was, and it was so about, I'd say a couple months later, the department got a letter. His sister wrote me a letter to the department apologizing to me wow. for having to see her brother do that. Wow. Last you know, thing you would himself. ever expect to receive. Yeah. Oh. I wouldn't think somebody would do that. Wow. You know, I mean, as far as write me a letter to apologize for her brother's actions yeah. Yeah. and all that. So, yeah, I mean, that was, Whoa. you know, that was Jeez. a pretty big call. You know, we didn't have those all the time, but no, you know, we had, I mean, I'd say, 
like getting in pursuits with people as far as chasing cars around for doing whatever. I probably in my 19 years on patrol, I was probably involved in 75 or 80 pursuits. Okay. Altogether. You know, of chasing I I mean, I remember chasing one guy was a uh escaped convict wow. that uh stole a car Jiffy Lube. And we got in a big pursuit with him and wrecked him into a into a pole and stuff. So huh. yeah, so the, we had a little bit of everything, a little bit of everything. Just out of curiosity, so, what were yeah. you guys? What were you guys driving up there? Well, when I first started, we had Crown Vicks, okay, and Chevy Caprices, the big uh, old Caprices, the big oh, round wow. ones, really. And then yeah, and those were good. Those were good big boats. I yeah, mean, those things could. They, you, you were safe in them. Oh, okay. You know, and then okay. we finally, once we got rid of, got rid of Caprices first, we kept Crown Vicks for a while. And then we start transitioning into, um, Ford Explorers and Dodge Chargers. So huh. when I left, it was all Chargers Explorers. Oh, no, I, I didn't like the Chargers. They were just really too low to the ground. I didn't like. Yeah, I didn't like getting in and out of those things. Yeah, but I would imagine so the, the, the explorers explorers are too high off the ground, right? No, no, they were they were fine. They were an all wheel drive, okay, police package because they were made by Ford for police officers. They had a turbo six engine type in it. That, I mean, I I hit 120, 130 in those, no problem. Oh, geez. in those explorers, <laughs> and the Chargers were even faster because yeah. I mean, a guy and I got. In a, one night with somebody and once we took off on once he took off on us and we took off that charger left me in the dirt oh geez you know yeah, sure and I finally to continue with him on the pursuit but that charger as far as get up and go had a little more get up and go than the uh explorer did at first but then the explorer could catch up so it's no wonder that they do so many uh shows about cops and speaking of that mm-hmm. didn't you mention that cops came out to your department last time we talked? No, they came out three different times, three different years. They came out there and I got on, I think in 07, I was on three episodes. Oh, no kidding. And I Hi. think 16, I was on one. And actually I was on one after I retired because it got taped the year I retired. Oh, yeah. and it didn't come out to the year. So it came out in 19, a year after I retired, I was on also. That, so yeah, well, I was on there a few times in oh seven. So that was, right? that was, was too. How how does that whole process work? How do they set that up? Do they ride along with you in the car and set the cameras all up in there? Yes. Is that driving yeah, so nuts? What we or? did was we had it can, but they have two crews <laughs> that come out. So they have a camera guy and a sound guy. Uh-huh. So two guys with a patrol guy, and then they had we had we had two crews. So one crew would go with me and we had two cars set up where we took, they took the cages out of them. So there was no cage oh, okay. between the, you know, back seat and front seat. So the camera guy would ride in the passenger seat and the sound guy with his boom mic would ride in the back seat. Uh-huh. And you just went out and did your stuff, you know, and if I made a traffic stop, they would get out, you know, they'd be filming it. They'd have the boom mic out. And usually the guy that I'd stop, you know, would be like looking at everything, like what's going on here. <laughs> right. And right. all we would say was, we didn't want to say that the cops TV show. So we'd say, we're making a training video of how to do traffic stops. Oh, okay. Things like that. Okay. So, same thing. When we went to a call, if I went to a domestic or something and they were with me and another officer was there with me and I had a camera crew with me, 
you know, we'd, we'd handle our job. And if somebody said, what's, what's with all these cameras? Well, we're making a training video on how to handle police calls. You know, and most, most people would be like, all right, whatever, you know, there's gotta be some that so don't want to give you somebody. consent, right? Right. So what you did, so what they did was, I mean, when you, you know, if, if, if they didn't want to be taped, yeah, they'd turn the cameras off right there. Oh, okay. So, right. and they would just are and wait while we handled the call. Yeah. But after we arrested, you know, if they continued taping and nobody bitched about it, you know, and they got a good episode out of it and we'd had the guy, you know, under arrest for something and he'd be in the back of our car and the uh, cops guys would go over and have to get him to sign a consent form, huh. you know, to be on TV. So basically wow. they didn't like us being there when they did it because they kind of, nah, not coerced them, but kind of convinced them <laughs> <laughs> that it would, uh. It would be something they could use for the, their defense. Oh, that's creative. You know, they yeah. could use the whole episode to uh, help them with their defense. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll sign. Yeah. Well, when they went to their hotel that night, they cut that 40-minute taping into a seven-minute episode. Okay. So all that other 33 minutes was gone. Oh, so they, they couldn't have used that anyway, right? So all they had was seven minutes of this guy being a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's how they made a show well that that so, show so they ran, did it right away that night that show ran for so long i guess they perfected those techniques and yeah. getting people to sign off on it oh yeah 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 they did very much so and they were i mean they went all over the place yeah you know every place you could think of and you know they like like when they got to us one time they had been in atlanta georgia the week before and they usually came for about two and a half, three months. Yeah. They would sure. be well, about two months they would stay there. About eight weeks they would stay there and at a location. And they would just go out every they'd go out every day. Wow. Well, they take a couple of days off here and there, but pretty much they would find guys they liked. You know, they'd ride with a bunch of different ones. Yeah. And they'd find guys they liked riding with who, as they called it, had screen presence. Oh. And <laughs> they would they would go with them guys and, you know, you, you were signed your patrol area still, but you could pretty much go to any call you wanted in the city yeah. to try to get them involved in something. So, huh. so yeah, I mean, it worked out well for us. We, we never had any bad press or anything like that, or, you know, people complaining about it or anything. So yeah. they, they, they were there in like, Oh seven, like I said, Oh six. And they showed no seven. And then they came back in like 15. And then in 18. So, yeah. So it was, it was interesting. But the last year they came back, I didn't really want to go with them again. Oh, yeah. Because I'd done it enough. Yeah. want to do it again. And the guy I had for my camera guy the first time was now the executive producer. Wow. And he had told all the guys coming and he came with them, you know, to introduce everybody around since he'd been there before to Boise. And he came into our briefing with them and he's like, that's John Mathis. You need to ride with him. Oh, I'm like, no, they ain't riding with me this time. You know? And he'd like, yeah, they are. So I took him a couple times that I usually got out of it. Yeah. And so the only show I got that last year before I retired was helping another guy that had him riding with him. Okay. So when I <laughs> recall with him to help out on something, but you know, it just, you know, it was fun to do, but you got tired of it too. I, I would so imagine. Yeah. Somebody. Yeah. yeah. Basically they were with me, you know, for, four days a week 
for three or four weeks straight, they were with me, you know, and then they'd go to somebody else for a while. So, the, yeah. Uh, over the but, last, what, uh, six, seven years, uh, they've had all that uh, unrest and uh, across the nation, the police department and some, you know, and they've, a lot of states have, you know, instituted right. body cams where there wasn't body cams. Did you retire before that mm -hmm. era or did you, they oh, ever? We had, we had, we had body cams when I left. We, we, we had them for about, I left in 18. I think we got them in 15. Oh, you did. We got body okay. cam. Okay. Yeah, we had them and we had, you know, we went with different ones because they got better and better. So we had, first we had one that I wore up on my epaulet. It was like a little camera with a, on my epaulet on a clip and it had a wire that went through my shirt, you know, and wow. all that and connected to another piece on my belt. That was the taping unit that I had to push to start it. And then they finally went to another type that was a lot of them still wear now, which is more of a one unit that basically has a big magnet under your shirt and attaches to that. And it's right in the middle of your chest. Oh, okay. And you just push the button or, stop it by that button also. And the camera's right there. So the big thing with those is, you know, they're good and all that for both uses to, yeah. you know, say the show what the bad guy did and also to show what the officer did and, and in deadly force situations are good. But sometimes, you know, if you have them on in your chest area and you bring your gun out to point it, oh, it's obscure. Your right? gun is blocking them from the camera. Yeah. So yeah. the camera's not seeing everything because your gun's right in front of you. <laughs> so sometimes they weren't as good, but usually 90% of the time they were fine. Well, they're not infallible, yeah. but it just, it, it no. here's another goofy question too. Uh, including that camera, I God, how long mm -hmm. did it take you to get into uniform? <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, I mean, I've, you, it's you like putting it. all your field gear on, uh, on a yeah. daily basis. Yeah. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, putting on my vest, you know, I always wore an, uh, my vest was under my shirt. A lot of guys now went to the outer vest, you know, that are outside their shirt, like a flak vest Oh, okay. type thing, you know, but I, I, I always wore the inner inner vest under my shirt, you know, and yeah. then your gun belt and all that. And you figure, yeah, with a vest and your gun belt, with everything on it, you're carrying 25 to 30 extra pounds. God, easy, of right? Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and people develop, I mean, I develop back problems, Did you? sciatic yeah. nerve issues. Oh, things wow. like that. Wow. You know, where I went to a chiropractor every month. Did you really? You know, to get corrected. And after I retired, about six months after I retired, my sciatic nerve wasn't bothering me anymore. Huh. My huh. back still a little sore now and then, of course, but that's just old age too, lower back pain and all that good stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, getting out of in and out of the car with all oh, that gear on. God, yeah. Yeah. So you get you do, a lot of guys develop back issues and all that. So, wow. Problems with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. Well, let's, uh, I mean, I could ramble with you for another two hours, you know, just listening to you. Uh, but let's, let's boil it down to here. Do you have a proudest moment in that police career? I mean, the, the, some of the arrests I made, I was very proud of, you know, and yeah, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I said on, on the previous podcast you know about giving cpr to people right well i i actually had one time i went to a medical call we had this apartment area that was we let me get let me get this right we had <laughs> uh, 
we had Bosnians, Russians, and Syrians all living in this one apartment complex. Wow. We called it the, we called it the little UN. <laughs> and, you know, and sometimes you would go in there and you'd go on a call and you'd have, cause we carried little badge stickers, you know, to give to kids and all that stuff. Oh, okay. And, and it was, we, we used to call it black Hawk down because you would pull in there <laughs> and you would have 30, 40 kids around your car yelling sticker, sticker, sticker. Oh, really? Really? All this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one night though, I get called there on a medical call where a Bosnian kid, two years old is choking. No, oh, no. And the father's all frantic and all this. And I get there, it's like 11 at night. And I get there and he's outside with him and the mom, the mom and the dad are outside with the little kid neighbors are out and his kids turning blue. Ugh. And so I just did a, basically I said, what's he, did you, did he eat something? They said, yeah, he was eating a burrito and he's choking. Uh -huh. I'm like, all right. So I put him in like a modified Heimlich basically over my fingers and just friggin', you know, yanked up like you do for a Heimlich. Yeah. And the burrito came flying out of his mouth, oh, it did. <laughs> you know, and. Yeah. So, and he, he was fine. You know, the medics showed up then I handed him off to the medics and here you go. He's good to go. Wow. So, but yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a big, big deal for me, you know, and, sure. um, there, you know, there was, I, I got an award one year from the, um, from, um, what do you call it? Jeez. Okay. Red cross from the red cross. Okay. They would give annual awards out for law enforcement, fire guys, paramedics for something special where they did that year. And I had a train, a trainee with me one night and we had a jumper off a parking garage, about a six floor parking garage. And he was going to jump off it. And we talked him down and all that stuff. And he gave us a hug when we took him on his mental hold and took him to the hospital and all this for saving his life and all this. So we got an award for that. Did you talk then, to him? Yeah. Yeah. I was the one talking to him. And got him to come down and everything else. Wow. But let's just say he was a, I don't want to say frequent flyer. But oh, oh. <laughs> he actually, a couple months later, we got called on the same guy again at another parking garage. And so I went up there again because other guys were already up there talking to him. So I went up there again and he saw me and I'm like, hey, and he was drunk, of course, oh, and all yeah. this. Yeah. So he saw me and I start talking a little bit, the other, you know, the primary guy was still talking to him, but I just interceded a little bit here and there and he came down again. Oh, so, <laughs> but we, you know, we, things like that was always a good thing, you know? Yeah. Anytime you could, you know, something with a kid or saving somebody's life like that was always a good thing. Um, domestics to me, I had a lot of domestics where we hauled guys away and, you know, where they needed to be hauled away and yeah. got the wives to, got the wives to safety and maybe got them down to a shelter and got them on the right track to get rid of this guy. So thing, things like that were big for me, you know? Yeah, of course. Of course. So, yeah. And there's, you know, the, all of us had our moments with, you know, critical incidents as they were called, where we got involved in some big things with, uh, people and, you know, my wife, my wife would, my current wife, she's a nurse and she would work night shift uh -huh. at the uh, main hospital in Boise. She worked in the NICU though. She was a baby nurse. Oh, okay. So she'd work seven to seven, seven at night till seven in the morning. And yeah. I worked till one thirty in the morning. So there was nights we had some major incidents where I had to call her and say, Hey honey, I was involved in this, but I'm not hurt. 
You're going to hear about it. Oh yeah. But yeah. I'm okay. You know, things like that. Jeez. So yeah. And you know, and there was things that happened, you know, they, they talked about, you, you talk about, you know, PTSD and all that. And there was, there were some things that you see and sure. that you don't forget, of course. You know, a, a, a good friend of mine, a guy I got hired with, he, uh, w- so we had about, when this was on Veterans Day of 2016, we had a guy that had already shot a couple people over the previous few days, and he was all high, and yeah. he carjacked a lady, and he shot a few people, and Jeez. everybody's looking for him. And one of our off-duty detectives on Veterans Day saw him driving down one of our main roads and kind of followed him a little and called in everybody, and patrol got there. And this was day shift, and I was coming on, on swing shift, and day shift got it locked down. The guy got out on foot and took off, so they called in our SWAT team. Well, one of the day shift guys was uh, Kevin, a guy named Kevin, and he got hired with me, like I said. His badge number is one difference from mine. Oh, wow. He got hired right behind me, but he uh, he was one of the leads on the SWAT team as they were doing yard-to-yard checks, and there was outside this one house with some garbage cans. And he kind of looks over the garbage can with a couple guys behind him and a canine dog with him. And the guy's laying there pointing a nine mil at him and just blasts oh, away. Wow. Hits Kevin six times. Um, he takes six rounds in the lower area uh-huh. and a couple in the vest. And they let the dog go. Dog starts biting on him. He shoots the dog once. And then one of the SWAT guys put a round in his head. Jeez. And killed him. And uh, Kevin, they loaded up in a Bearcat, which is the SWAT vehicle, you know, the tactical vehicle they got because the hospital was only a mile and a half away, luckily. Okay. And they had what's called TAC meds. So they had some medics that are assigned to the SWAT team that are tactical medics. And they start working on him. And the other guy, well, another guy, Chris Davis, another friend of mine, he took a round. I always tell him he got shot in the butt, but it, <laughs> it went in his, it went in his left thigh and out his butt. Okay. Jeez. But he was able to walk still and just hobble into the bear cat with another guy helping him. But Kevin had to be carried in a course and, and we were just coming on and it was a, since it was a holiday, there were a lot of people working. So I was tacked up with my guy. I usually go two car, two man car with, uh-huh. and we're heading their lights and siren and stuff. And as we're getting close, they're saying they're heading to the hospital. So we stop, do traffic control, get them through the intersection, get to the hospital. Everybody's there. We help unload Kevin. Um, and he's just saying, you know, he's just yelling, I can't feel my legs. jeez. Oh, and you look at his left calf and it was just opened up about eight to 10 inches where a <sighs> round went right through his calf. Wow. And all that. So anyway, we, they get him in there and work on him and all that. Unfortunately, Kevin ended up losing that leg from the knee down and he's paralyzed now from the waist down. Wow. So he's in a wheelchair. And now because of problems with his other leg, they ended up just two years ago taking his right leg. Oh, geez. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. I mean, this is a guy, he was in, he was in the army. He was a army guy and, you know, and been a cop is, you know, like the same time as me and always big SWAT guy and all that. 
and a good cop, a yeah. great cop. Yeah. So he ended up basically retiring. They kept him on to where he got up to his points to retire normal without having to take an early retirement medically. Ah, that's nice. Basically by letting him work in training and doing classes by, through his wheelchair and all that. And yeah. Stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, that was a big, that was one of the biggest things we had. I mean, we, another officer, Derek whips, he actually was a, one of my trainees. He, uh, back in the eh, 2005 time period, probably. Yeah. We had been, we were looking for a guy that also had shot somebody and Derek pulled over this car and it wasn't the car we were looking for, but it happened to be the guy because he switched cars. Oh, wow. And it was day shift and Derek walked up doing his, like he's supposed to, you know, keeping himself bladed as we called it, where he's just leaning in with his left side with his right hand on his gun. Yeah. And the guy reaches out and fires twice, hits him in the neck both times. Jeez. Takes off. So Derek's able to call for help. Everybody gets there and all that. And he lived and wow. I went up to see him in the hospital about eh, three days later, something like that. And I felt really bad because I was his training officer. And did I teach him enough to protect himself? Yeah, I guess you know? that's going to run through your head, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when I got up there to see him, you know, he, he could barely talk, but, and I got emotional with him and, you know, I just, I told him, I said, I hope it's, it's not something I didn't teach you, you know? Yeah. And he shook his head. No, he goes, you taught me. And he says, I did everything right. And he just, you know, the Browns caught me. Wow. So, yeah. So things like that, you know, just stick with you. Well, you think of things. We so. always said, you know, uh, and I was an artillery guy in the, in the army. Um, but you know, I, I, we, we tried to go by my, my division. I tried to go to war like three times and never got to, but whether you go to a war zone or you don't go to a war zone, the MPs and security forces are always going to see more life threatening stuff, you know, unless mm -hmm. you're on the front lines generally. Right. For the majority right. of the military, you guys are really, you don't, that, that day is unknown, right? Right. And yeah. That transfers over to the uh, police department as well. I mean, you never know what no. that I mean, day is. That's why, you know, like a traffic stop, they, you know, a traffic stops always just, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you're just doing a traffic stop for a guy that ran a stop sign. But to us, it's called an unknown stop because you don't know who you're dealing with or yeah. what. Yeah. You don't know why he ran that stop sign or why he's speeding. You know, did he just shoot somebody? Did he just kill sure. somebody? Yeah. Is he wanted for something? So you, you you always walk up like one of my sergeants told me he was a Fresno cop before he got on Boise. And Fresno's a pretty busy town in California there. And he said, I used to walk up on traffic stops, he said. And in my mind, I was saying headshot, 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 headshot. Oh, jeez. So I got up there and it was grandma yeah. and I could do my thing. But he said, I was always prepared that if it happened and I saw something, I was saying headshot. So when I pulled, I would go right through his head. Jeez. Jeez. So, and, and that actually, uh, you know, real quickly, that actually happened where for me and another guy, we were on patrol and we stopped this car. We were tacked up two man unit, stopped this car. And it was a, it was a piece of shit car, two dudes in it. And it was midnight. And as we're, we walk up, he's on the passenger side. I'm on the driver's side. I tell the driver to keep his hands on the steering wheel. He says, okay. And all of a sudden my partner yells gun. Oh, geez. 
So I pull mine. I put it to his head, this guy's head. And I say, you move your hands. I'm going to shoot you right here. And my partner's got his gun on the other guy. So we're calling then for units to come because this, the passenger had a gun tucked under his leg. Oh, he did. And my partner just happened to see it with his flashlight. As he comes up, he puts his flashlight there and sees the butt of the gun sticking out. Oh, so yeah. And they were, they were, they were dopers. They were, yeah. We found dope in the car and the rest, you know, ammo and stuff. And they went to jail, of course, but you just never know, you know, who you're stopping and going to deal with and all that. Well, and I don't know how frequently those situations happen to you, um, but uh, how do you decompress from that? You know, I mean. uh, Um, You go have a few beers. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. The old, you know, the old standard way. huh? (laughs) Yeah. I mean. And, you know, you you got guys just like on any job, especially in police department, though, you got guys we called shit magnets that (laughs) it seemed like so-and-so would always get, he'd go to a call and it would turn to shit. Oh, yeah. A huge fight or somebody shooting a round off or somebody pulling a knife or something. You know, it just follows those guys around. Yeah. You follow, you had guys like that that, you know, you had guys that never shot somebody. I never shot somebody in my career. Pulled my gun hundreds of times. Yeah. Had the trigger back hundreds of times. Oh, yeah? But never had to shoot anybody. Oh, thank but God. we had guys that were in five, six shootings, you know? <laughs> so you just didn't know. You know, sure. it could happen. And we had, and like I said, we were one of the busier shifts. Our swing shift was one of the busier shifts because you came on it in the afternoons and went to one thirty in the morning. So you dealt with a lot of people, normal people during the day and evenings, and then the shit bags till one thirty. Yeah. Right. So, right. so you, we were one of the busier shifts that dealt with stuff. So you just never, you just never knew when yeah. something could happen. So. Retired police corporal John Mathis. Thanks for telling me your story. Your second story. Uh, <laughs> thanks for your service to the country and your service to uh, the city of Boise. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I had a great time speaking with you again. Oh, thanks, John. On behalf of Officer Mathis, I'd like to thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please leave a like and a comment and share the podcast with someone else. And as always, make sure to download the next episode for more service origin stories. So until next time, on your feet, it's this